0: You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the Greater Pittsburgh Metropolitan Area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to 2 um, Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 15. I'm going to read, I think I'm going to read the entire chapter. We're not going to, I'm not going to try to expound the entire chapter this morning. In fact, for the most part, we're going to probably be focusing on verse 2. Um, and I suppose an argument could be made verse 15 as well. But um, let me read the entire chapter. Second Chronicles 15, beginning with verse 1. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you were with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country, of Ephraim, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon, who were residing with them, for great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought uh, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep, and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul, but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns, and all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all of their heart, and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Even Meachah, his mother, King uh, his mother king Asa, removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook drawn, but the high places were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days, and he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father, and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels, and there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa, Heavenly Father, we call on you this morning, Father, because we require your grace. Father, if we are to understand these passages and to gain from them, to profit from them spiritually, it will be only because, Father, you've blessed us. And we look to you, O oh, Father, for that blessing. We pray, O oh, Father, you would... Open our hearts this morning and be our teacher and our guide, O oh Lord, that, Father, uh, we would not only come to understand these passages, but that, Father, by your grace, you would align our lives and our hearts, our will and our affections by them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week, we immersed ourselves in, really, the. A, a part of scripture that I think is probably not so well known by many of us and on the surface I think there's a reason for that there's actually a number of reasons for that and on the surface I mean I think folks will read these kinds of texts and kind of get lost in these strange names and these strange places and actually history can have its own difficulty to read it's easy to get lost when you're reading history as names come up and you're trying to sort uh, all of this out, and I think some of us can end up throwing our arms up and just ask ourselves, "How in the world are we to apply these passages to our lives? I mean what are we what exactly are we to be getting uh, out of these and Of course these are valid questions and and let's just let's just share this right from the start. A lot of times these texts are misapplied there's no question. They're misunderstood and certainly misapplied. So this morning, I really want to have kind of two things going on this morning. I want to—I I don't want to just explain the passage this morning, but I actually want, as I'm going along, uh, to show you how I'm explaining the passage. Um, you know, I, I want to say a few uh, a, a few words about how to apply uh, this text, and one of the reasons. Let me let me just. Share right from the start. One of the reasons we get lost in these passages is we just simply do not know our way around the Old Testament well enough. I mean, that's 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 it. And and for the start, Uh, but if we you know, and if we don't know the history very well, we're going to find making sense of these texts to be uh, quite um, difficult. And let me just start by sharing a few things that I shared last week, just by way of review. You know, under under King David. Uh, Israel became a superpower. I mean, David's military advancements and military might brought them to be really one of the superpowers of the world at that time. And then David's son Solomon, who is the second king uh, of Israel. I mean, really, he's kind of the third, if we but discounting King Saul. If we start with David, Solomon is the second king, Solomon being David's son and successor. And under Solomon, Israel prospered like no other time. So you had... You know, you had David's conquest, which brought peace to the land, and then you had Solomon's prosperity. So there they had peace and prosperity. And just to give you a little taste of the kind of prosperity they enjoyed under Solomon, here's just a couple of verses. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. 1 Kings 10.21 says, All ca- all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. I mean, imagine that. If you If you come over to our home and you get into our cupboards, um, you're not going to find any gold in there. <laughs> in fact, if there was gold in there, we would have sold it a long time ago. So you won't find any gold in there. Um, we would have paid those student loans off a long time ago if there were gold dishes in there. And uh, if we continue to read 1 Kings ten twenty one, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold and all of the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Again, if you get in our cupboards, you're not going to find any silver either. Um, so, and I, I suspect that that's probably the case with all of us. Um, so imagine this silver is being considered as nothing. Verse 27, And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. So here we're seeing, uh, the, the, these verses are showing us the exceeding wealth Uh, that was enjoyed under King Solomon now as often as the case wealth turns our hearts from the Lord it's not uh, always the case we know there are some in the Old Testament who are quite wealthy Abraham was quite wealthy Job was quite wealthy Uh, but generally speaking one of the worst things that can happen to us is wealth Uh, many folks uh, play the various lotteries are out there and unfortunately the lottery is a source of hope for so many poor souls uh, the dream of the day when they'll hit big uh, is before them always. But what happens? I mean, all of us know what happens. So much of the time, uh, when these poor souls hit big, uh, the money when they get this large sum of money all at once, it generally wreaks havoc on their family lives, and um, it's uh, they they often end up broke in the end. We could we could uh, just look at some of the athletes that you know reach these large sums of money all at once uh, and um, I'm not certainly not throwing any stones at anybody you know if we're if we if we're if we suddenly come into uh, this kind of money when we're very young I mean very very few of us would have the wisdom to be able to handle that and uh, let, let me add if the only thing that came out of receiving a large sum of money was the turning of your heart from the Lord well then the money would be the worst thing that could ever happen to you you know it would be actually the worst thing that could ever happen to you. I mean, you will take no money with you when you depart from this life, not even as much as a penny. And the only thing you will take from, you know, take with you when this short life is over is a relationship with the Lord. Everybody has one. It's either a good one or it's a bad one. And if it's a relationship of, of wholehearted devotion, and let, let me say that again, if it's a relationship of wholehearted devotion, then you're going to enter into true riches. You know, the riches that this world poses before us are fool's gold. They are not true riches. True riches await the faithful in heaven. And if your relationship is a relationship of wholehearted devotion, you'll enter into those true riches. But if it's a relationship of half-hearted devotion or a relationship of complete unbelief, then it's the eternal darkness that awaits us. It's eternal darkness. And see how, I mean, just when we put it this way, you can see how devastating it is to have anything in our lives turn our hearts from the Lord. There is no sum of money worth your soul. No sum of money. Jesus pleads with you like this. He says, for what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I'm going to read that again. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world Now, no one has ever done that. No one has ever gained the whole world. But what if someone gained the whole world and lost his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul, says Jesus? That's from Matthew 16, 26. These are wise words. How can they not be wise words? They're spoken by Jesus. They're true words. These words are loving words. And they're expressed by way of a warning siren. And May they ring like trumpets in our hearts and minds. Every hour of every day, people are dying and plunging into and stepping into eternity with hearts that are in love with this world. And their fate is set forever. Their fate is set for eternity. Anything, when we think of it this way, and we need to think of it this way, because then we begin to see the danger. Anything that serves to turn your heart away from the Lord is a deadly poison. It's it's a deadly cancer. It's more dangerous than any virus or disease or tragedy you could face. This coronavirus is not the deadliest thing that we face as human beings. It's not even close. The coronavirus may ruin your body, but the coronavirus cannot ruin your soul. Unbelief, unbelief actually not only ruins our bodies, but unbelief actually will destroy our souls for eternity. And if we're looking for an illustration for this, we can get many of them uh, from the Old Testament kings. I mean, Rehoboam, uh, Rehoboam was the foolish son of Solomon who succeeded Solomon. Uh, to the throne. And the first thing that Rehoboam did was divide the kingdom. Why did he divide the kingdom? Because he listened to his spoiled brat buddies instead of listening to the elders. And the very first thing that he did was, you know, he he, he just goofed up and he divided the kingdom permanently so that there were 10 northern tribes uh, in the north that just refused to follow him. And you had the southern uh, tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south, and now they're now they're divided. And Jeroboam, who the north took as their first king, uh, as a, as independent from Judah, uh, he led them into crass idolatry. Uh, he turned their hearts away from the Lord. And the people of the south were led in the same. Uh, Rehoboam, uh, his son Abijam, reigns after him. And First Kings fifteen three. You don't need to turn there, but listen to this verse. First Kings fifteen three says. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. Okay, what's being said? See how you can get lost in this history here. It's very easy to get lost. Let me let me put it another way that makes it really clear. David, he, you know, David slips up a few times. We have the record of that. But overall, David's David's heart is after the Lord. Then comes Solomon. Solomon makes a good start, but then he's carried away uh, by wealth and carried away by his by his his sensuality. Uh, then you have Rehoboam. Rehoboam leads, Solomon leads uh, the hearts of, of Israel astray. Rehoboam leads the hearts of Israel astray, and his, his son Abijam leads the hearts of Israel astray. And that brings us to where we began last week in 2 Chronicles 14 that brings us to Asa, uh, who uh, reigns after his father Abijam and we are told in 2nd chronicles 14:2 that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God and we considered the reforms which Asa led last week if you look at verses 3 4 and 5 he took away the foreign altars and the high places broke down the pillars cut down the ashram he commanded Judah to seek the Lord the God of their fathers, to keep the law and commandment. He also took out of the all of the cities of Judah, the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. So we see the importance of what's going on here. Asa is turning the hearts of Israel back to the Lord. A bad king is a curse, for he will turn the hearts of his people away from the Lord. But a good king is a blessing. And the worst thing you can have happen to you is have your heart turned away from the Lord. Now, we're born into this life with hearts that are turned away from the Lord, and anything that would keep our hearts turned away from the Lord is, of course, a curse. Uh, But when you come to faith, you quickly recognize the battle. I mean, you discover all kinds of things that are always laboring to try to steal our hearts away, and it's a battle, isn't it? We find our hearts are constantly being pulled this way, pulled that way, turned this way, turned that way. And many of the things that 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 pull our hearts are great things. They're blessings that God gives to us, like homes and cars and careers and even children, and all of which are wonderful blessings from the Lord. But our sinful hearts, they turn these otherwise good things into idols. And what is an idol? An idol is anything you love and serve more than God. That's the simplest definition I know of an idol. It's anything you love and serve more than God. Uh, If there's If there's anything that we love and serve more than God, then it's an idol. And as we grasp this truth, we begin to see the incredible blessing Judah is given as Asa labors to turn Judah back to the Lord. Now, further last week, we saw Asa lead Judah up against an army of one million soldiers. And what a uh, a tremendously uh, horrifying sight it would be to be lined up in battle against one million men. And in verse 11, which was our scripture memory verse, Asa uh, cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, I love what Asa says here. He says, it is nothing with thee. It is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art God, let not man prevail against thee i mean you can hear us as resolved reliance upon the lord in this prayer it's a great prayer not only to have as a as a scripture memory verse but a great prayer to have near near you whenever you're praying to the lord um us's resolve is so clear in it he says it is nothing with you to help us oh lord it is nothing with thee to help no matter how large the army that comes against us this is nothing for you it's nothing with thee. No matter how weak we might be, it is nothing with you. No matter how power they, powerful they may be, it is nothing for you. We rest in you. And in verse 12, we see what happens. The Lord defeats the Ethiopians uh, before us and before Judah. And we're told that the Ethiopians fled in verse 12. And one thing we need to understand as we're reading these old these old stories, uh, these passages, is that when the Ethiopians rose up against judah with their one million strong army uh, they were rising up against the people of god as they were doing that and i could put it another way they were actually rising up against god as they were doing that and Asa recognizes that and that's in his prayer he says let not man prevail against thee let not man prevail against you and of course the lord soundly defeats them and this brings us to this morning's text where we find king usa has an encounter with a prophet if you look at verse 1, there we see the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And let me just stop right there and, and just point out, you know, there we see the work of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to remind you, we are studying the Old Testament. So, like, the Holy Spirit was functioning before, before Acts chapter 2. Uh, there the Holy Spirit is functioning, and uh, here he is empowering Azariah. To uh, give a an inspired word to uh, to us, um, and uh, um, uh, let me uh, uh, point on point something else here before we move on, because I think this is a perfect place uh, to do so. When we think of prophecy, and I'm not speaking about in charismatic circles, I'm just speaking in culture at large. When our culture at large thinks about Prophecy. What typically comes to mind is prediction of the future, uh, typically speaking. And I mean, am setting. I mean, in, in charismatic circles, prophecy generally means something altogether. I'm not speaking to that, but at our culture at large, when we think about prophecy, you know, you go into a bookstore, and well, I don't think we see that much anymore. But you know, 15 years ago, you went into a bookstore, and there would be a big, massive shelf there about prophecy of end times. And prophecy, of course, uh, to many was a prediction of the future. But actually, much of the prophetic material of the Old Testament is not really a prediction of the future. It's actually a calling of the people of God to the covenant. Um, It's a calling of the people of God uh, to the covenant, uh, mainly calling them back to their covenant responsibilities and back back to God's Uh, covenant promises and the text that we come to this morning is a prime example of that you know I read all of chapter 15 this morning but I really want to focus on verse 2 and let's look closely at what the prophet Azariah is saying first notice in verse 2 who Azariah is speaking to if you look at verse 2 there um, Azariah went out to meet Asa and said to him hear me Asa and all Judah in Benjamin, now this is really important. Who is Azariah speaking to? He's speaking to the Southern Kingdom. He is speaking to the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and he is speaking especially to the king, to, to the king, to King Asa, who has the responsibility of leading the Southern Kingdom. It's important that we remember this. Who the prophet is speaking to? Now, let me take this a step further, because if we, if we fail to recognize this next step, then we're going to misstep in our application of this text, and it happens all the time. Judah, Benjamin, and King Asa, who is the leader of the southern tribes, these are people who are in covenant with God. They're in covenant with God. They're circumcised men. They are offspring of those who entered into, God, into covenant with God under Moses. Uh, So they are God's covenant people who are under the stipulations and promises of the Mosaic Covenant. My plan is to continue to study this through chapter 16. So I'm, I'm offering this to you. We're not going to get into a whole bunch of application of this, but I want you to hold on to this and start thinking this through. These are men who are the offspring of those who entered into covenant under the Mosaic administration. Okay, they've, they, these are, these are uh, people who are in the Old Testament uh, covenant with God, if you will. And uh, we must keep this in mind as we seek to make application. So, I mean, let's continue with what Azariah has to say uh, to uh, King Asa, to the people of the southern kingdom. Verse 2, Azariah says, Hear me, Asa, and Judah, and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you were with him. If you seek him he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now, herein lies actually one of the emphasis, one of the emphases of Second Chronicles actually, is this idea of seeking the Lord. And again, let me emphasize the fact that Ezra is speaking to the covenant community here of Southern Kingdom. In other words, Ezra is not speaking to the heathen nations that are around the Southern Kingdom. There were plenty of them. He is not speaking to them. He is speaking to the covenant community. Now, the next question we need to take up is what exactly does it mean to seek the Lord? Uh, what exactly does that mean? Well, to seek the Lord is to turn your heart, your will, your mind, your affections towards Lord. Uh, the, the Reformation Heritage King James Study Bible, which I've been talking about a lot because I can't put it down. Uh, we, we, Tammy and I just love this uh, study Bible so much. It says this, quote, to seek God is to draw near to him in worship and prayer With desire, reliance, repentance, and submission. I'm going to read that to you again slowly. To seek God is to draw near to Him in worship and prayer. Okay, so drawing to Him in worship and prayer. With desire, reliance, repentance, and submission. So let's start putting a little bit of this together. Ezariah has been given a word to proclaim to the southern kingdom who are in covenant with the Lord. Put another way, Azariah is given a word to proclaim to the people of God. And Azariah here is functioning as a covenant spokesperson. As a covenant spokesman, if you will, he is speaking to the covenant community. And Azariah is calling them to seek the Lord. And to seek the Lord is to turn to him with heart, will, mind, and affections. Uh, to seek the Lord is to draw near to him in worship and prayer, with desire, reliance, repentance, and submission. Um, so, how do we do this today? How would we apply this today? Well, we ask ourselves this question: who is Ezariah speaking to? He is speaking to the people of God. Who are the people of God today? It is the church. Now, I don't we don't have time this morning to go into this, but what we have to understand is there are there are lines of continuity between uh, the people of God under the Mosaic economy. And the people of God today, there are lines of continuity there. There's also lines of discontinuity, and we can be able to begin to bring tease some of those out as we go along. We don't have time so much to do it today, but I'm just planting seeds in your mind to help you uh, apply these things uh, accurately. But what we can say this morning is that we 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 are going to be applying this to the people of God, uh, not to the people who are outside of the covenant. Okay, that's 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 who's being spoken to here. So once we do that we discover, really, that things haven't changed very much. The people of God in Ezra's time were wayward, they were idolatrous, they were going through the motions, they were externally oriented, and possession of hearts that were given to many worldly things. Now, does that sound familiar? Um, I, I'll read it again. I mean, the people of God in Ezra's time were wayward, idolatrous, going through the motions, externally oriented, and, possessions of heart, and possession of hearts which were given to many worldly things. And what is the message to them? The message to them is seek the Lord. And this seeking, this seeking of the Lord is no half-hearted undertaking. Uh, This is not merely going through the motions. This is not an external exercise. Ezariah is calling God's people to seek the Lord with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, all their strength. Ezariah is calling people to be single-minded. Ezariah is calling people to put away their divided heart. Now, this touches on a very important spiritual principle for us today. You cannot make progress in your spiritual life with a divided heart. It doesn't work. It will not ever work. We cannot make progress in our spiritual life with a divided heart. I mean, you can't come to God for a couple hours on Sunday and then disconnect from Him for the rest of the week. Uh, This actually makes a mockery of God. He's long-suffering. And he's patient and he's kind, but this will eventually turn him to anger. It will eventually anger him. Nor can we give the Lord a tiny corner of our heart. We can't give him a little tiny corner of our heart. This will not do. We cannot give the Lord our second, third, or fourth love. Hold on to that because in the conclusion this morning, I want to revisit that. We can't give him our second, our third, or our fourth, or our fifth love. that, uh, That will not do. So this seeking of the Lord requires that we destroy our idols. Again, what are our idols? Anything that's in the way. Anything and everything that we love more than God. But before we move on, let me say a few words about how i'm applying this in uh in this message i want you to see the steps i'm taking as i've been pointing out here so that we'll be able to do the same in our own personal study azariah is speaking to covenant to god's covenant people and these people were in covenant with god under the mosaic administration so for the start uh, we apply this message to the church and not to the world Uh, this is a clarion call to seek the lord and to rid our hearts of idols, to walk with a singular heart, to worship and serve the Lord with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. And when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, what is interesting is that we find Jesus doing exactly the same thing. And let me give you an example. We've already read one this morning. Keep your place in Second Chronicles, because we're going to turn back and forth a little bit, but turn to Revelation 3. Uh, To the passage that we've read, starting with verse 14, Revelation 3 and verse 14. And to the angel in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, notice who Jesus is speaking to. It's important that we see this because this gets ignored all the time, especially in this passage. Who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the church in Laodicea. This gets ignored all the time. You see, we have to keep in. Con- we, we, it's part of the context. Who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to the church in Laodicea. He's speaking to the covenant community there. Uh, and a lot of people take this out of context. He is not speaking to the heathens in Asia Minor. That's not who Jesus is speaking to. In verses 15 and 16, he says, "I know your works. You're neither cold or hot." Now, if he was speaking to the heathens in Asia Minor, he wouldn't, he'd say, I know your works. (laughs) But he wouldn't have any expectation for them to be hot. (laughs) I mean, they're walking in unbelief, crass unbelief. Um, Here he's speaking to the covenant community, and here's his complaint. You're neither cold nor you're hot. Would you that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. These folks have become lukewarm. That is, they've become divided, half-hearted, external, and worldly-minded. Now, Jesus continues in verse 17. He says, For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea has become complacent. That is, they have become satisfied with their wealth. I have prospered. I need nothing. That is how they see themselves. But how does Christ see them? He says that they do not realize that they are wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, blind, and naked. Now this is the estimate of the Lord behind the charge given to Azariah, is it not? There is a great need for the church to be awakened. In Azariah's day and in our day, from worldly mindedness, half-hearted devotion, I believe there are thousands of people in the church who are quite comfortable with half-hearted devotion. This, this is the lukewarm condition of which Jesus speaks. Now, here's an indictment, first of all. Not against these people that are that are, luke, that are lukewarm. This is an indictment against those of us who teach, actually. Uh, it's an indictment against ministers. It's, it's our responsibility to warn about this about this condition. It's the responsibility of all ministers of the gospel to warn. And herein lies the danger of a poor or absent teaching ministry. Keep your place in Revelation 3 and look back with me again to 2 Chronicles 15. 2 Chronicles 15, beginning with verse 3, Azariah points out, notice what he says, For a long time Israel was without the true God, And without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all of the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces, nation was crushed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. They had looters in the streets. They had people burning cars. I mean, that that this distress uh, uh, taking place. These kinds of things. These things have been going on throughout the entire history of mankind. But my point here is this: point, what Azariah is pointing, or what Isaiah is pointing out to Uzzah, is he's pointing back to the days of the Judges. And if you're familiar with the Book of Judges, you'll find that the people of God uh, backslide from God, and then God raises up oppressors, neighboring nations who oppress them, and they pinch them, they push them to the point that they call out to God again, and then they follow God for a while, and then they 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 begin half-hearted following Him, uh, and then they fall away again, and then they're oppressed, and you have this continually cycle going on where they're where they're going back and forth and up and down. Now the point that I find interesting in all this is the absence of a teaching ministry. Notice that Usa says that in verse 3, For a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest. In the Old Testament economy, it was a priest who, who did this instruction. Now, in the New Testament economy, we don't have priests anymore. Uh, the, every believer is a priest. There's the priesthood of all believers. If you are a believer, Peter teaches, Peter teaches us that we are all priests in that, uh, in that capacity. But the teaching ministry is conducted by pastors and teachers, covenant spokesmen, if you will. And here we see the incredible danger of a poor teaching ministry. What happens in times of a poor teaching ministry? Well, the people of God do not hear these warnings, uh, nor do they hear the promises. And with that in mind, look, look, go back to Revelation 3, and let's look at this again. There is no better teaching ministry than Jesus. Uh, this is a, he, he represents a perfect teaching ministry. And if you look to Revelation Uh, verse, uh, Revelation 3, beginning with verse 15, notice what Jesus says. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me "'Gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, "'and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, "'and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, "'and sad to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. "'Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, "'so be zealous and repent.' Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you see? I mean, we can see the warning in these, but do you see the charge in verse 18? Jesus is charging. I counsel you to buy from me gold. Refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Now, where are we to get this gold? We get this gold from Christ. It's the only place we can get this gold. We get this gold from Christ. Where do we Where do we get these clothes? Where do we get this? Where do we get this? Uh, these white garments? Well, the moment we place our faith and our trust in Christ. Uh, What does he do? He clothes us with his perfect righteousness. This is an emblem. It's a figure of his perfect righteousness. These white garments or this white raiment, if you will, is is an emblem of the perfect righteousness that's given to us. Uh, no one's going to come to Jesus until they realize that they're wretched and miserable and blind and naked. No one's going to come to Jesus unless they've been warned to come to Jesus. But we, Jesus here, is giving us this charge. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by a fire. This is not an evangelistic rally that's taking place in Nineveh. This is a charge that's given to the church, and lay ought to see it. It's important that we see this. Uh, Jesus is counseling his church to uh, buy from him gold. But notice what Jesus is doing in verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Now, who's doing the seeking? Who is doing the seeking? You know, Azariah calls the people to seek the Lord. In Revelation 3, who is doing the seeking? It's Jesus. Jesus is doing the seeking. And if Christ if Christ were not doing the seeking, then there wouldn't be anybody getting found. That's, that's just the bottom line. And how does Christ seek us today? Well, he calls us as Arias uh, to call upon the church and say, seek the Lord. Uh, he calls upon his ministers to inform the church that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money, Matthew 6:24. He calls his ministers to call the church to put away a divided heart, to serve the Lord with a singular devotion. And he also calls his ministers to preach the promises. If you again look back to, with me to Revelation 3 again in verse 21. He says in there that to him that overcome I will grant to sit with me on my throne even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. You hear that incredible promise that's in that verse. This incredible verse. What's it saying? It's saying to the one who overcomes his divided heart Christ will grant to him the privileges of reigning with him in his kingdom. And one of the Principal reasons that men and women do not come to Christ is because they're busy building their own kingdoms they're busy building their own kingdoms but here Jesus is offering he's offering us a co-reign in his kingdom and and it's absolutely incredible I mean what a tremendous promise what must we do we turn our eyes upon Jesus we embrace him with wholehearted devotion and childlike trust we confess our our idolatrous loves we come clean with everything we call on Christ to make our hearts pure and clean. And, and But what we need to understand this morning is that Jesus will not settle for second or third or fourth place. And I, I want to emphasize this because there is so much ministry going on in our land where I, I don't think anybody ever hears this. I think a lot of people feel safe and secure with just a little tiny piece of their heart given to Jesus. But what is Jesus saying so forcefully and so clearly? He says to the church in Laodicea, I wish you were either hot or cold. But seeing that you're neither, I'm about to bless you? No. He says, I'm about to spit you out. And this is the scary part, you see. This is what's so frightening, is that a lot of people are being coddled to sleep, thinking they're in a secure place, when they're really their true devotion to the Lord is, It's only a half devotion. Their hearts are really in other things. Uh, Jesus will not take second place. He will not take third place. He will not take fourth place. And someone said, well, how do I know that? Well, look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. There, Jesus, what does he have against the church in Ephesus? He says, thou hast left thy first love. You have left thy first love. Huh. Preachers who do not warn their parishioners of this fact will leave them to step into eternity lost. That's what will happen. Um, if we don't, if we don't, and, and if we don't go out and warn each other of these things, not just the indictment really isn't just against me or others who teach. But, uh, I mean, as we scatter out into the community, let's not allow our friends and relatives and whoever to believe that they're in a safe place if they've only got a half hearted uh, devotion going on. Uh, towards the Lord, don't 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 coddle them to sleep. Um, Jesus demands to be first and foremost. It's it's not too much to ask, given He's gone to the cross to die for our, our sins, and um, uh, <laughs> we we He has to be He has to be first. Now, um, um, I I know one thing as a pastor. One thing that I'm always going to try to persuade everyone. Is always to make Jesus our first, and and you know, we we seek Him with a wholehearted devotion, I and mean, we seek Him in faith, we seek Him in repentance, we surrender our heart. Uh, let's not think for a moment we can play lip service to Him. He knows our hearts. Uh, what do we do? We come clean. Um, we come clean with the Lord, and we just ask ourselves this question right now, and let let each of us ask us, ourselves this question. Just say, you know, Lord, search me and know me and reveal to me my hidden faults. Is there anything in my life, Lord, that is between me and you? Is there anything in my life that I love more than I love you? Let each of us ask ourselves this question Is there anything in our lives that we love more than you, O oh Lord? And if the answer is yes, what do we do? Well, we take it to the Lord. We take it and we say, Lord, You know, I love my, I'm asking myself this question. I've discovered, Lord, I love my spouse more than I love you. Um, Listen, Jesus will never teach us to hate our spouses. He will never teach us to say hate our spouses. In fact, what he will do is he will show us how to love our spouses better. There is no way possible for us to love our spouses well if our spouses are idols. It's not possible. The only way that we can love our spouses to the best of our ability is when we love Jesus more than we love our spouses. I could put it another way. You want to love your spouse? You want to love your spouse as best as you're able? Then be sure you love Jesus more than you love your spouse. I can sit here so blessed this morning because I have a wife who loves Jesus more than she loves me. Now, many of you who know me might not find that so hard to believe. But It's important that she loves Jesus more than me. And if I love her, listen, if I love her, then it's important to me that I make sure she loves Jesus more than she loves me. Otherwise, what am I doing to her? Causing her to make Jesus her second love? Causing her to sin against Jesus in this way? That she would be lukewarm before him? And in danger of being spit out of his mouth? You see the seriousness of this. Now, we we could continue with this. We could add children to the mix. Oh, Lord, I search my heart, and I discover that I love my children more than I love you. What are we to do with that? Well, we c- confess it, because you're not going to be telling God something he doesn't already know. In fact, it could be this morning where he's just choosing to reveal that to you. I know you love your children more than me. You've done that for a long time. We confess that to him. Lord, help me to reverse this. Because the same thing applies to our children. We'll never love our children. One of the real big problems with parenting today is these children are idols. They're little idols running around. Parents cannot love their children as well while those children are idols, as they will love them when they love Jesus more than them. The most loving thing that we can do for our kids is to love Jesus more than our kids. Uh, that's the most love, because what are we going to do when we do that? They're going to recognize it. Our kids know what we love. Believe me, you're not going to, you can dupe everybody, but you're not going to dupe your kids. They love, they know what we love. And if they see us loving Jesus more than they love them, they will respect that eventually. They might resent that at the start, but they will respect that eventually. And what are we doing? We're teaching them to love Jesus more than they love Jesus everything else and we can continue to go right down the line you could add cars you could add trucks you could add buses you could add any anything that's uh anything other than god if we love it more if we love money more than we love what do we do uh we we go to the lord and we confess it just like we're doing now lord there's this thing that i love more than you uh reverse it and there's another problem before i close that i should bring up and this often comes the case idolatry is such a powerful thing It has such a powerful grip on our hearts and it has the ability to really twist our minds up to where we don't even realize that it's there. But when we discover it, sometimes we recognize it needs to go, but our love for it, our love for it, just the passion of our love for it says, you know what, I don't really want it to go. And we could find ourselves in that shape this morning. Maybe some of us this morning are saying, you know what, there is this area. There is this forbidden land in my heart, and I love it, and I cherish it. And I can't go to God and ask Him to take that away when I love it so much. I, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being a hypocrite. What do I do then? Well, what do we do then? What, in other words, what do we do when we don't want to confess this what do we do when we don't even want to admit this what do we do then come clean come clean how do we come clean you come clean by saying lord i got this thing that i love and i don't want to let it go oh father help me to let it go help me to let it go and I know that even as I pray right now, my prayer is half-hearted. My prayer is, my repentance is half-hearted. My work is, you know, my my heart is divided. My heart is a mess. Oh, Father, do for me what I could never do myself. Work into me a singular heart. Work into me a heart that beats your thoughts after you and loves the things that you love and hates the things that you hate. And you know something? I can promise you with the authority of the scriptures and the authority of the word of God, I can promise you that Jesus loves those kinds of prayers. He absolutely loves. His heart is thrilled to hear people pray that way honesty is something that Jesus cherishes. So we come to him in honesty, and we say, you know what, Lord, I I got this thing going on, and it's hideous. It's hideous. Take, Take it away from me. Don't let him go until he does so, because what he will do is storm the gates of your heart, and he will change you. And when you begin to love Him more than you love everything else. And I'm not saying you're going to do that perfectly because you're staring at somebody right now that doesn't do that perfectly. But when He is the guiding principle of your life and the governing principle of your life, you'll stray to the left, you'll stray to the right. But He will gather you up and He'll remind you of it and He'll nurture you and bring you right back into the center. And that's when we begin to to live. This is what Jesus is saying when he says this is eternal life that you know the father and Jesus whom he has sent this is eternal life that once we begin once our hearts are are the the gates of our hearts are stormed and we're truly changed the heart the church today is full of people that are only enlightened to a certain degree, that have not been truly born again and brought into this place in which I'm talking about. Don't settle for that. If there is anything in your heart or in your life that's between you and Jesus, you haven't come full circle. And I don't want to leave you any inclination that you have because I want to see you come full circle because I want to see you in heaven. I want to see you, all of us should want to see each other in heaven. One of the scariest things for me as a pastor, especially as I look out at all of you, is the thought of not seeing you in eternity with Christ Jesus. We, Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if there are these things in our lives that we love more than Jesus, then it's going to be difficult to determine whether, one, we are backslidden, or two, we are apostate. Now, neither situation is a good situation. So we call on the Lord, Lord, take this away, whatever it might be. And let me conclude with this, because I like to conclude on positive things. One of the most rewarding things I enjoy as a pastor is watching the Holy Spirit work in your hearts to move you to do exactly what the text is calling you to do. Please, everyone, don't think for a moment that I think that every one of you are outside of the faith. I don't think that. But I know your hearts because I know my own heart, and there are things sometimes that will get between us and the Lord. And what I want for those of you who are in the faith solidly, what What I just want to remind you of is these things are always scratching at us, aren't they? They They're always trying to pull our hearts away. And we need to understand this cancer for what it is. Let's not toy with it. Let's not flirt with it. Let's not do it. Jesus said, if the eye offend thee, pluck it out. Um, If the right hand offend thee, cut it off. Make a decisive and an immediate decision to be part with anything that gets in the way between us and the Lord. And there may be some, there may be some this morning who have never been born again. You've never, your heart is not yet regenerate, because there are all these other loves. It may be pride. It could be anything under the sun. Um, These are the instructions. What do we do if this describes me? Uh, You come clean. You just come clean. You know, the best thing when we're kids and we're caught and stuff, it's never good to lie. It's best just to come clean, isn't it? Come clean with it all before a loving Father and a, and a merciful Father and plead with Him for forgiveness and ask Him to create in you a clean heart. And He will storm the gates of your heart and He will do exactly that. And with those words and with that promise, let us pray. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, we so thank you for the gospel We so thank you, Father, that we with these twisted and sinful hearts can have a path, that we can have a way to come and be made right and be made the way that, Father, you've created us to be, that we would be humble servants that are wholeheartedly devoted to you, that you are the love of our lives that you are the governing principle of our lives, that it's not money that we love, it's not things that we love, it's not even other people that we love more than you, but it is you that we love, it is you that our hearts thrive after. We can say with the psalmist as the deer pants for water, so my soul panteth for you. O Father, create in us hearts that beat after you, create in us, O Father, hearts that love you undividedly and wholeheartedly, O Father. And that, uh, Lord, uh, we will enjoy you uh, forever and ever. Amen and amen.